y'all. Let's pray, and then, we're, uh, then we'll get started. Um, Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for this time that we can, even though the numbers are small, but we can gather together, but we're thankful to you for the live stream to where no matter where we may be, we can tune in and watch, um, and we need this. We need to gather together, but also we just need to sit under the, the singing of your word. We need to sing those words. We need to be reminded in an ever-changing time, like, gosh, just so much has changed over the last few months all around us. In a, a forever-changing world, you never change. And as we're even gonna see today in the book of Hosea, your love never changes. And so Lord, may we just be reminded of that great love and may that great love that you have for us, may it fuel our change. May we be changed, Lord. May we be changed by a God who never changes, Lord. Change us, Lord, even today. Shape us by your love to love others. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, over the past 10 years of serving as the uh, primary preaching pastor at the Point Community Church, from time to time, folks will come to me and they'll say, you know, Pastor Andy, I wish you would preach more on prophecy. And now look at us, here we are. We're in the prophetic books of the Bible, right? That's, what, that's where we are. I mean, you don't get any more prophecy than the prophetic books of the Bible. Last week, Pastor Sean preached from the book of Amos. Um, today, we're gonna look at Hosea. I mean, we're not gonna get to the book of Obadiah, but for the, the men on Monday night, we are gonna be doing a virtual Bible study class and Pastor Sean's gonna be teaching that over the minor prophets in the Bible. I tell you what, if you'll do this, go ahead, um, for those of you in the room, maybe if you're at home and you have your Bible, turn with me to your table of contents in your Bible. I've said one of the goals and objectives of preaching um, on this uh, sermon series, going through the storyline of the Bible, is that you would learn kind of the, how, the structure of the Bible, how the Bible and the books and the, what we would say the canon of the Bible, the books of the Bible, how they're organized and how they're laid out. And you'll notice that there's a, a section there starting with Isaiah and ending with uh, Malachi. He was the prophet that was from Italy. No, that's, I'm joking. I'm just seeing, you know, I can see you smiling via the internet. I can see you smiling through your face mask. Uh, the book of Malachi, those are the prophetic books of the Bible. They're divided by uh, major prophets and minor prophets. Ask you this question, how many minor prophets are there in the Bible? If you had to wage a guess, how many might you say? I'll give you the answer. The answer is 12, right? That's, that's a, a number that's used a lot in the Bible, but there are 12 uh, minor prophets. And the major and the minor isn't broken down. It's not called major and minor. Like, you know, who, who wants to see a, a minor league uh, sporting event. Nobody, but you know, that's not, you know, we want major leagues. That's what we want. We want major league baseball right now. And that's what we got. Praise the Lord for that. So, but we don't want to see something that's the minor leagues. It's not broken down like that, but it's just broken down by how much that they do. It's not that broken down by their contribution or their significance, but it's just by the, by the, the, the sheer volume of, to which they've written. But there are four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then there are 12 minor prophets. In fact, all of the minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible would have been in one scroll and it was called the book of the 12. That's how you can remember 12. And so they, the Jesus's Bible, Paul's Bible, Peter's Bible, it would have been kind of one scroll, one book, all 12 of them together. As you see them in the table of contents, they're not in chronological order. That would have maybe been helpful, but they're just in a they're in order as those, that, they're actually in order as the, as the book of the 12 had it. And there's seams there that they're kind of sewn together as one theme's picked up by another, but they're not in chronological order. 
we're going to find ourselves at the prophet Hosea. And so you can see there, that's page, for those of you looking at the Pew Bible, that is page 751. And so if you'll turn over with me, before we read the text, let me just say this, and we've covered this once before, but oftentimes God will call the prophets to do something. He will give them kind of a lesson. For the teachers in the room, you're, you're trying to have how, how to figure out new ways to instruct, new ways to teach. And oftentimes you may turn to using an object lesson. You dump Mentos into a two liter of, of um, diet beverage to watch it explode. You may do something else. And sometimes God would have his prophets do something as an object lesson to the people. We saw this with Ahijah um, several weeks ago, one of the first prophets under the, the time whenever the kingdom would be divided. And Ahijah had on a, a new garment and he comes and he meets Jeroboam and he takes his new garment off, his new suit off, and he rips it into 12 pieces and he gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam and holds two back for Rehoboam. And he's saying that the kingdom of God is gonna be divided. That's the picture that he's given. Isaiah will be called to walk around naked for uh, three years. That's his object lesson to the people saying like, basically God's gonna strip you naked before him. Praise God that God's not instructed that to be the dress code at the Point Community Church. It's the very opposite. We encourage you not just to wear face masks, but to wear clothes as well. But that's what God asked the prophet Isaiah to do. God has, um, God has the prophet Ezekiel lay on his side for one year and utter prophecies. When he gets to Hosea, God gives Hosea the object lesson of object lessons, as we'll see in the text. And so starting in the first verse of the book of Hosea, it says this, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the house of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So those are a list of the kings of Judah that are, that are serving as kings during the time of uh, Hosea's ministry. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. And so this is Jeroboam the second. This isn't the Sarah, Jeroboam that I mentioned earlier. This is a, a, a later predecessor of Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second. They're not even, I don't think even related. But anyway, verse number two, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So we went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibalaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And, the, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land for that great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
This is the word of the Lord and we give thanks to it. Here's kind of a big idea of the book of Hosea. This would be the big E on the I chart. Honestly, that's one of those texts of scripture where I don't think that you need me, but let me just maybe help you and give you the big idea for um, this section of, uh, of Hosea's prophecy. And it's this, that God is not an impersonal force. Yes, God is a spirit, but he's not a spirit in some generic sense that's divorced from being or divorced from, uh, or divorced from emotion, but that God is a person. He's a person who feels. God is capable of, of feeling, and he does feel love. He's capable of feeling rejection, and he grieves, as the Bible says even. And what the book of Hosea does for us is it highlights God's faithful love, and it highlights the unfaithfulness of his people. And here's the message of Hosea. The message is simply this. It's to return to the Lord, your husband, your loving husband. It is the truth that it is God's love that changes us. Let God's love for you, his jealous and faithful love that he has towards his creation and most assuredly towards his people, let that love, let that shape you and change you in your love to him and your love of others. It is God's love that shapes and fuels our love. Here's the simple outline. It is, we were gonna look at the marriage and the children of uh, Hosea and Gomer. And then we're gonna look at the message of the book of Hosea. And then lastly, we'll end very short form with the Messiah, looking at the Messiah felt so proud of myself as a good Baptist, having all three of them, uh, my points start with the letter M. That's good. And that's what they taught me when I went to Bible college, good Baptist school, how to, how to do that. And so there it is for us. First is marriage and children. God's object lesson for Israel is that he has the prophet Hosea marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. She's a, probably a temple prostitute. Sometimes the pastors, we wanna complain about God's, uh, the assignment that God calls us to fulfill. Gives us a hard people, a difficult people, a small church, a too large of a church, you know, whatever it may be, but none of us has had it as bad as what Hosea has, that God gives him this assignment. And the assignment is, I want you to go and I want you to love. I want you to covenant yourself. I want you to marry a prostitute. Seems obvious that she is unfaithful before their marriage, unfaithful during their marriage, unfaithful after their marriage. She bears to them three children. And as, the, as, as Hosea writes himself, they're the children of whoredom. We're not even sure if they belong to Gomer or, or not as to highlight her unfaithfulness. This lesson declares three things, three truths to us. Again, these are simple, but they're so true that we need to be reminded of them. The first thing that, that, that I think Hosea wants us to know is that God loves his people. Or I know that God is declaring through Hosea. I shouldn't say I think that. God is declaring is that God loves his people. That God has covenanted himself to his people. The covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Noah. I mean, I have Moses, the covenant of David. Assuredly that they are, they're pictures of a marriage covenant. But that's really the only time for us that we use the picture of covenant, but it is in marriage where we speak and we say vows and we make promises and we say, until death alone shall part us. That's the picture of covenant. And the covenant that God has made with the people of Israel is a marriage to them. He's marrying to himself, to Israel. He's married them. And like any other marriage, what God's design is for that to be a monogamous 
covenantal marriage, which brings us to the second point. God is a faithful husband. As a faithful husband, God has provided and he's protected his bride. He's kept his promises to his bride. He has made as any good uh, husband would do, not just as he providing, not only is he protecting, not only is he making promises, like we may do those things to our spouse, but what our spouse may say, but yeah, but what I really want is I want you. I don't want a husband that's never present with us. I don't want a husband who's always, or even for us, like we would not, for the men in the room, we wouldn't want a wife who's always off to work. We would want somebody that's with us. And God has also given his presence to his people. He's provided for them. He's protecting them. He's made promises to them. And he's made his presence known among them. Most assuredly, he has done this in Israel through the tabernacle and through the temple that God is in their midst. But number three, God's people are an unfaithful people to him. Throughout the book of, uh, throughout the Bible, but also most uh, importantly throughout Hosea, that sin and idolatry and lawlessness is described as adultery. It's, so, it's, it's described as unfaithfulness to God. He doesn't use a pretty word here. The word is whoredom. In verse number two, he says, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom for the land. This is why the land commits great whoredom. And why? Because they've forsaken the Lord. It's like, how many times can we say that word in one verse? But it's in order to make a point. He's using a, a hard to hear, hard to think about word in order to, in order to make a point. And here's the point that God's love is, is shocking. He's using a shocking word to say that the, the love of God is shocking. It's, it's scandalous. If I was to say to you to take just a moment and think about God for a moment, and then I, what I want you to do is I want you to, to write down what enters into your mind as you think about God. Do you think about an image or a description or words that could describe God? Now write those down and maybe you would think of somebody who is strong and mighty those things would be true of God. Maybe you'd think about somebody who's wise and that things are true about God. A.W. Tozer says what enters into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing that you will think about. But I think we could probably all write down if we weren't studying Hosea, we could write so many descriptions down and nobody would say that God could be described as the jilted husband the brokenhearted lover whose love is scorned, the object of derision. We probably wouldn't say that, but it's true. That's the message of Hosea. That's how Hosea is describing God to us. These are the way that, that this is who God is. He is these things because his people are unfaithful. Gomer will bear three, chil three children, maybe to Hosea, and God will name the children. Each of the names of the children will symbolize God's word or God's judgment upon an unfaithful Israel. I don't know, for those of you that are parents in the room, I don't know how much work went into naming your children. I wanna name this child. I know for me uh, and Luann, that was a big deal for us that we talked about for some time, even prior to begin, uh, Luann getting pregnant was, what are we gonna name our children? We wanted to show honor to my grandfather. We wanted to show honor to this part. We wanted to do this, do this, do this. All of those things, well, you, you know what you could have done is you could have just let God name your child. Maybe he would have named your children like he named, uh, like he named Gomer and uh, Hosea's children. Three names, the first name, the first child is a son and his name is Jezreel. Verse number four, and the Lord said to him, call him Jezreel. 
for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. So this is an event that's taking place in 2 Kings chapter nine. He says, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And what Jezreel is, Jezreel is a place. And we've said several different times that God is putting Israel's theology on the map. Geography matters. And here he's naming a child after a place. It's the place where Jehu will slaughter uh, the house and the king of Ahab. So Ahab was the king and Ahab was a absolutely terrible king. Ahab had a wife. That wife's name is Jezebel. Like we still talk about Jezebel. Pastor Tony talked a little bit about Jezebel because this is in the times of Elijah and Elisha. And God will raise up Jehu, who also will be a horrible king. It's the truth that horrible people, God will often utilize horrible people to carry out his will. But God will raise up Jehu as a horrible king, but then Jehu will slaughter Ahab in Jezreel, in this place. That Jezreel is a battleground. What occurs at Jezreel is a, is a complete bloodbath. It's a place of judgment and a place of war. Jehu is enacting God's judgment on the house of Ahab for their idolatry. Like I said, it's a battleground. It'd be like someone naming a child Gettysburg or a World War II veteran naming their child Okinawa or, or possibly Normandy. And what God is saying is I'm going to punish Israel in a similar fashion by the sword. I will punish Israel for not learning the lesson that they should have learned in the place of Jezreel that what's happening there is God is bringing judgment to the idolaters. What God is teaching there is idolatry leads to judgment. And he says, I'm gonna do that again. You didn't learn your lesson there, but now you will learn your lesson is what he's saying because I'm going to break the bow of Israel in Jezreel. Those of you that have shot archery, hunting or in competition, we have the Western Hills archery coach with us. Uh, an archer, a, a broken bow is of no use. That's what he's saying to them. This is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna break your bow. Your weapons are gonna be useless against your adversary. I'm gonna render you powerless. And this will occur in 722 when the nation of Israel will be uh, overtaken by the nation of Assyria. That's the first child. The second child is a daughter and her name is simply no mercy. In the Hebrew, it's lo ruama. Verse number six, call her name no mercy for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. What he's saying here is God is going to withhold mercy from them. Now, who needs mercy? Guilty people need mercy. It's not that innocent people don't need mercy. Guilty people need mercy. And what God is declaring is you are guilty. You're not innocent, you're guilty. But here's the deal. You're gonna cry out for mercy, but I'm going to withhold mercy from you. I'm gonna let you stand guilty before me and I'm gonna bring judgment upon you. And then the third judgment that comes, the third word through the third child is even a far more uh, grim picture than the first two even. Lastly, there's a son and his name will be not my people, Lo-Ami. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people 
and I am not your God. And this is the worst judgment that Israel could hear. They are being disowned by the God who has delivered them out of slavery in Egypt that's taken them to the promised land. In Exodus alone, 17 times, God will declare to Israel, you are my people. That's the great refrain throughout the Old Testament is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And now what he is saying to them is you are not my people. So at the very heart of the kingdom of God, today we find ourselves 30 weeks into, into this year, 30 weeks into the sermon series. And on multiple times, we've described the kingdom of God as this, it's God's people in God's place, under God's blessing and God's rule. And what we see happening here, we said that Israel was a partial fulfillment to the kingdom of God. We saw God's people, the Israelites, they're in God's place, the promised land that he's given to them. They're under God's blessing and they're under God's rule, but because, because they, refuse, they refuse to submit to God's rule, God is gonna take away the blessing and ultimately what he's gonna do, he's going to exile them. That's the word that's coming here. God's people will be no more. It's, it's what's happened in Genesis 3 all over again. You had Adam and Eve, God's people, in the Garden of Eden, God's place, but they sin against God. They refuse to follow his rule. And so God removes the blessing and kicks them out, exiles them out of the place of God. And he's doing it again here to Israel. There is no God's people any longer. There is no place. I'm gonna take it away from you. It's gonna be destroyed by Assyria. Judah will be destroyed by Babylon. You're gonna be kicked out, exiled out. And it's all because they refuse to lovingly submit to God's rule in spite of God's blessing. Even though God was blessing them, they refused to lovingly submit to God's rule. They have unfaithfully, says here, gone after other gods. They've gone after other lovers. The message of Hosea, as I said, is pretty simple. The lesson in Hosea is not for our earthly messages, I mean, for our earthly marriages, although certainly we can glean some truth in here, but it's to see God's faithful love to us. What God is declaring in Hosea is God loves perfectly. God loves his people with a ferocious, jealous, faithful, and perfect love. Take that home to your own hearts, dear Christians. I guess I can think of no greater truth that you need to hear today than that truth right there that God loves you with a ferocious and a jealous and a faithful and a perfect love. Your circumstances do not determine that. Your circumstances don't mean whether God loves you or doesn't love you. That God has objectively declared his love for you by crucifying his own son on the cross. And that is why I can say to you, dear Christian, that God loves you in this fashion, that he loves you with a ferocious and a jealous and a faithful and a perfect love. Pastor Tim Keller says this, that love awakens love. And that's why that's the greatest truth that you need to know. It's because God's love for you should awaken. It should incite. It should stir up a love within you. That we should see the great love with which God has loved us and we should love him in return and love, and love for others. That love throughout the Bible is to be manifested in worship and in obedience. 
that when you think about the law of the Lord, we said this, that the, what the prophets are doing is the prophets are calling the people back to the law. They're giving the word of judgment to the people. And what they're saying is, is the judgment is coming because you have not kept the law. Now, I don't know what may enter into your mind when you think about the law. If I was to say to you, how should you respond to the law? Possibly what you would say is, well, you're to obey the law. And that is true, but the obedience isn't the, the very heart of the message of the law. Obedience doesn't get all the way down to the, the core and the core intention of the law of God. Like certainly when you see a stop sign, what should you do? Well, you should obey that stop sign and so you should stop, right? When you see 70 miles an hour, you know, when you're coming down Home Street, this posted speed limit for, no, that's not down Home Street, is it? That's I-64. But when you come down and you see 70 miles an hour, you should drive 70 miles an hour. You should obey the, the written laws. And sometimes you may think that when it comes to God's laws. When you think about the Ten Commandments, you may say, what should I do? What's my right response to that? And you would say, well, my right response to that should be obedience. But we should really think of the law as a, not just as one thing, but as kind of a, a multi-layered thing. And as you think about each layer and you kind of peel back one layer, it reveals a new layer, peel that back, it reveals a new layer. Like certainly there's the layer of the law where the law is reflecting the character and nature of God. Why does God command us to, to, to not to lie? Tell no lies. Why? Because God is the God of truth. Why does God say, you know, thou shalt not murder? Why does God command that? Well, because God is the God of life. He gives life. In creation, we see this, that God opens up his mouth and life falls out of his mouth. Why does God say, do not commit adultery? Well, we see that in Hosea because God is a God who is faithful in his love to us. And so the character of God is in woven within the law and we could peel that back. And then we could say, well, what we need to do is obey the law and we could peel that back. And we could say, talk about obedience. We could talk about obey, O-B-E-Y. It seems like I saw that written down somewhere recently feels like it was just like written in the sky, right? Obey, O-B-E-Y. If that wasn't one of the most bizarre things of 2020, I don't know what was. And those of you who may be watching that's not from Central Kentucky, Google it. And what you'll see is a dude that rented a plane and flew around all over Central Kentucky writing in the sky, O-B-E-Y. And we really don't know why, right? Guy with a lot of time um, and some money on his hand. And there you go. That's what you get. And maybe when you think of the law, you think O-B-E-Y, but that's not it. Keep peeling back, keep peeling it back. And what you'll get to is not O-B-E-Y, but L-O-V-E. The law is fulfilled in love. The intent of the law, the central issue of the law, the goal of the law was to teach and to produce love in God's people. Judgment is coming not because of just simple disobedience, but because they didn't love God and love him supremely. And when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus will teach this time and time again throughout the New Testament. It's nothing new about the law. It's just what Jesus is teaching and instructing about the law. Jesus teaches that the law hangs upon love, is what he says. The law is that love fulfills the law. That love fulfills all that the law was intended to do. Say that again, love fulfills all that the law was intended to do. Just like in the spring and you plant seeds or a bulb in the ground and then this beautiful flower uh, emerges. A plant comes up and then a flower emerges and you see the beauty of that flower and you smell that flower and all of that things. Then that flower intended everything that that seed sown in the ground was intended to do. It fulfilled it. 
In the same way that all of God's commands are being fulfilled by our love. The Bible teaches us that our love is to go in two directions. We see that throughout the 10 commandments. One is vertical towards God in worship, honoring the Lord and spending time with the Lord. Again, he has made his presence known to us. He's invited us into community through Jesus. He's reconciling us to himself so that we can have a loving relationship with him. Worship isn't just coming into a room and singing songs or giving an offering. Those are good things to do, but ultimately worship takes place in our heart. It's when we ascribe worth and glory and beauty and value to God. And all of these things out here in the world, they're vying for that. We can even say it's it, our love and our worship is manifested in our communion with God. The work of the gospel is to restore communion with God that you and I may know him. We don't have to go to a temple or a tabernacle or into a, a holy of holies. The holy of holies has come and it's resided in you. And I think that's a good question for us even this morning is how is your communion with the Lord? I understand in this world that we're living in, it's tough. Understand it's hard to feel connected to the sermon and connected to the singing, connected to the gathering, connected even to, to the Lord so you watch on a live stream, on a computer screen, or on a, a phone, and you're getting text messages, and this is happening, and that's happening. I understand that, but gosh, we need to fight for those things. We're called to love the Lord. It should be manifested in our worship of the Lord, and also we're called to love others. The vertical part is worship. The horizontal part is loving others. Jesus commands us to love God supremely and love others sacrificially. We're told to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Even more scandalous than that, we're told to love our enemies. Jesus will say this in Matthew 5, 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? When Jesus is using the tax collectors as an illustration here, he's like kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. And what he's saying is tax collectors see people that's what they can get from people, taxes to give, right? It's not a, it's not a set uh, number, but how much money can I see this? How, how much money can I get out of this person is how they're seeing them rather than seeing them with eyes of love and eyes of service. Jesus goes on and says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? There's no difference in you than what's in the world. What he's saying is our love, Jesus is... Love for us is being manifested in how we love others. And I don't know of a more difficult time in my 45 years on this earth to love others than it has been right now. I mean, this whole coronavirus and isolation and all of this that's been going on has just made it incredibly tough to love people. The longer the coronavirus pandemic goes on, the more protests and rioting and words and actions that are being slung around. I know this is true about me, the more isolated and detached from others that I feel. And my isolation, it's feeding my selfishness. And not only am I struggling, and I'm just being honest, I don't know, maybe this is you, maybe this not, but maybe not only is my isolation a problem, but in my isolation, the things that I'm watching, the things that I'm hearing is feeding anger. And isolation and anger are antithetical to love, right? 
sit up at night reading my Bible and praying with my wife. There have been times when we do this, or even at night watching sports, but because there's been no sports, we're forced to check Facebook. Like, that's what we say in our house. What are you, honey, what are you doing? I'm, well, I'm on my phone. I'm just checking Facebook. Is that what you all call it? Check Facebook? I'm just checking Facebook. But can I tell you this? You don't need to check Facebook. It's there. It's not going anywhere, unfortunately. It's going to be there. And guess what? The friends, that's the friends that you've chosen. They still are as opinionated as they ever have been. They're still doing the foolish things that they've always done. The news that is Facebook, it's just as divided as it's always been divided. And I don't know about you, but all of that stuff, it's, it's feeding anger. It's feeding isolation. It's, it's just feeding all of those things in me. And yet Jesus is saying this. Jesus is calling us to love. He's calling for us to love. Listen, the greatest threat to you as a believer in Jesus, it's not the coronavirus. It's not the government's overreach. It's not your, your, your need to stand up for you know, religious li liberties. The greatest threat isn't a, a cashless new world order. The greatest threat for you as a Christian is that you will shrink back from showing love to others. That's the greatest threat to your faith and to your soul in this pandemic and in this time of so much unrest around us. But Jesus says that our faith in him will be manifest. It will be evidence, not by whether or not we catch the coronavirus or not, not by whether or not we wear a mask or don't wear a mask, not by whether we stand up for injustices or refuse to stand up, not whether we stand for the, uh, the flag or we kneel during the, for the flag. None of those things is proving our faith in Jesus. Only one thing is proving our faith in Jesus. It's our love. Paul says it like this, our chief aim. He tells, he's writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, your chief aim in life and in ministry is this, a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Man, that's a good word for us, is it not? It's to love. Love is warm affection for regard and interest of another. It is concern evidenced in action. Love is more than a decision. People make cold-hearted decisions every single day. Love is more than a decision. Love is a feeling evidenced in action. Love is more than the opposite of hate. We will say, you know what? I don't, I love everybody because there's nobody I hate. There's nobody I feel ill to. There's nobody that I want to see dead, but that is not the opposite of love. Hate is not the opposite of love. Indifference and apathy is the opposite of love. It's to not feel anything towards them. They were called to real emotion and real service and a real kind regard evidenced in action. The church is called to actions like hospitality, to welcome one another, friendship, community, and service. Now, how in the world do you do that during a global pandemic? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Because in this time, we're being shaped by this pandemic. We're being shaped by all of these influences outside of us to see people as a threat a threat to our well-being, a threat to our health, and that is antithetical to love. And I'm not saying we rip off our mask and go around kissing people on the cheek. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we're, we're not going to be that biblical as what Paul says, to greet every brother with a, with a 
to greet everyone with a brotherly kiss. We're not gonna do that. I'm not saying that this isn't real, but what I am saying is we need to be creative and we need to be inventive in displaying our love towards others. This isn't a time to shrink back into displaying real acts of love and real acts of service to each other. Paul writes in Philippians 1.9, he tells the church in Philippi, he says, my prayer is this for you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. He adds in that. And I think that's a good place for us. I think we should start there and we should pray that for ourselves. We should pray that as a church, that Lord, our love may abound more and more and we don't know how to do it. So we need knowledge and we need discernment. We need knowledge and discernment. I know this, that text messages are not a threat to anyone. In fact, they're invited if they're words of encouragement, if they're words to check in. Even this week, we had to shut down our community groups. We're just now trying to get them up and running and going again. And then for real reasons, for real reasons, we needed to shut them down. Last thing we want is someone to catch the coronavirus within a PCG. And so we shut them down again. But listen, you can still text one another and check in on each other, share an encouragement word. You can still send a card and a letter, get out your wallet. Now I think it costs 55 cents to send a to send a mail. I sound like my grandpa there complaining about the price of postage stamps, but holy cow, can you believe that? But that's how much it cost. Still nothing wrong with saying good morning during the gathering. Finding other little ways to serve is okay. Being a peacemaker. We're told to stir one another. We're told to stir one another up in love and in good works. We're told to love him and to love others. And that is the message of Hosea. It's really simple. It's simply this, that you and I, we are like Gomer. We're all Gomer. There's only one Hosea in the Bible, and it's Jesus. Hosea is pointing forward to Jesus. And you and I, we are Gomer. We are wayward, and we're wretched, and we're dirty, and we're idolatrous. But God has come in the person and the work of Jesus to purchase for himself a bride, a bride unto himself. In fact, First Peter, Peter picks up, in this picture, as I said, so many times, Peter and Paul will draw from the book of the 12. And when Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter two, for those of you, the ladies in the room, D has been taking you through 1 Peter. Now you're in 2 Peter, so this will sound familiar. 1 Peter chapter two, verses nine and 10. But you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at that. We go back to that verse number nine. We're changing, it's a change of identity there. This is who you are. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Verse number 10, once you were not a people. Does that sound familiar? That's drawn from Hosea. That's Loami. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, lo ruama, but now you have received mercy. The message of Hosea is a message that changes us. No one loves sinners like Jesus. That's the good news. The good news of the gospel isn't that Jesus loves those who love him back. The message of Jesus isn't love him and be loved by him. That's not the message at all of Jesus. The message of Jesus as is summarized by the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 is this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christ takes the guilty and those who are on the outside with no rights to call him their own, and he makes us his own. That Christ changes, exchanges our shame and our condemnation and our guilt and our dirty rags with his righteousness. His mercy, it triumphed over judgment and he changes us. He gives us a new vocation and a new identity. He gives us new desires that where sin abounded, grace much more abounds to those who do not deserve it, to the gomers like me and like you. And here's the truth and here's the takeaway. Do not give your heart to another. Love the Lord Jesus Christ, honor him, live your life in joyful submission to him. Love others in his name so that he might get the glory in all and through all, amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray that would be true for us as a church. As we think about and figure out new ways to love people in real means, intangible means. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment to do that, that our love in this time may abound more and more, Lord. That where there's a feeling of just isolation, whether that's blamed upon social distancing or it's just by our own choice. Like we, by, by our fallen nature, we wanna live selfish lives for ourselves, Lord. Loving others is difficult and loving others is hard, Lord. Loving you sometimes is difficult and hard because it, it rubs against, Lord, what we know in our flesh, Lord. So Lord, I pray that we would be filled by it. Pray that we would see your great love, your ferocious love that's been displayed on the cross of Christ and the coming of Jesus to purchase a bride unto himself, that it may fuel us and it may change us and be trans- we would be transformed by that love. All for your fame. In your name we pray, amen.